All right. So the reason that we're having this discussion about repentance, whether it's works leading to conversion, leading to ultimate salvation, whether it's conversion leading to good works, leading to ultimate salvation, whether it's conversion just leading to salvation, no works at all needed. The reason that I'm mentioning this is because so much of Christianity is here or here that we've lost sight of this. The biblical balance is the works don't lead you to Jesus. Then he says, come in. But there must still be good works for there to actually be salvation. You cannot have salvation apart from good works because a salvation that does not produce works, according to James, is a faith that is dead. Okay? Um, so, because we tend to swing to extremes, these two extremes, we tend not to stay right here. So, that's one of the first important ideas about repentance, that it's not just, and this is where a lot of people would say, it's not just a one-time prayer, and it's not just a change of mind. So Zane Hodges said, if you change your mind, that's all that repentance is. I thought one way, now I think a different way. The problem with that is we do that about things all the time, and it's not a life-changing sort of event. I used to like blueberry pie, now I like chocolate cake. Like, that's, that's not repentance. It's more than that, right? Repentance would be, blueberry pie was evil, and I will never touch it again. Like, it's a change of disposition. I used to love this thing, and now I don't love it anymore. I love this thing instead. That's what we get closer to in the picture of 1 Thessalonians 1, 8 through 10, for example. And so, repentance is not just a change of mind, and repentance involves, it's not just a one-time prayer, and then you go the rest of your life doing whatever you want, and then you're like, oh, I got to heaven, here's my get-in ticket, and you're good. So the reason, what I'm saying when I say what are things associated with repentance, verse 2, when it says contend with your mother, contend, I would argue that there has to be someone who comes along and there has to be a degree of rebuke or conviction or those sorts of things in order for repentance to take place. Because the reason that we need to repent is because we're blinded by our sin in a way that we're not doing it on our own. So the first thing I think we see for verse 2 is that someone has to come alongside and bring that rebuke, reminder of who God is, and that was the function of a prophet, right? You are sinning. What has God said? Go back to it. Return, right? So when he says contend, that would be parallel with return, which would be parallel with repent, okay? What's the grounds of the complaint? She's not my wife and I'm not her husband. Now, it is true that the relationship still exists, but not in any meaningful sense. Because if she is finding her joy and satisfaction and intimacy and all of those sorts of things with other people who are not her husband, then there's no real sense in which their marriage is functioning the way that it's supposed to. And so what needs to happen is a change not just of thought, but of entire disposition of life. Stop committing adultery. So that's the end of verse 2. Okay? And the motivation for it comes in verses 3 through 7. Who can read 3 through 7 for us? This is God's anticipated judgment. Jonathan, thank you. Also 
for I will have no compassion on their children, because they are children of harlots. For their mother has played the harlot, she conceived them, has acted shamefully. So she said, I will go after my lovers and give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her path. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. And she will seek them, but she will not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it is better for me than now. Okay. What is the anticipated judgment that God is going to give? And there's this, there's this little bit of a sort of flickering back and forth, right, between the picture, Hosea and Gomer, and the reality, God and Israel, right? Because it says, say to your brothers, Ami, your sisters, Ruhama, and then contend with your mother, right? And there's a sense in which Hosea is saying this to Gomer, but God is also saying it to Israel in a symbolic way, right? So what is the threat of God's judgment? Yeah. Bob? So you're looking more at verses 6 and 7, right? Okay. Let's get to that in a moment. But 3 through 5, what is the, um, what is sort of the idea here? She's going to be punished, right? It's as if they went to war and they had a lot of their things taken away and they, they don't have much left over. Okay. So loss, shame, right? So the idea of being exposed in verse 3, the reason that that's significant is because there's shame associated with it, and there has been ever since the Garden of Eden, right? God made a covering for people because of the corruption that sin brought into the world. And so when that covering is taken away, there's shame associated with the exposure, right? But there is a deserved shame because of the sin that's, being t that's taking place, right? So she's going to lose food and drink and home and shelter and all those sorts of things. So this idea of wilderness and all that's associated with God's judgment and wandering and all of those sorts of things. There's a lot of ties back to the 40 years in the wilderness, right? In uh, Throughout the words of the prophets and even as you get into the New Testament. When it says no compassion on her children, it's interesting that he says that because in verse 1 he says ruhama, which means compassion, Right? And he says, I'll have no compassion. I think there's an implication here, which is, if there is no repentance, there will be no compassion, right? Which then gets in a sort of a complicated discussion of what's the reason for the repentance. Is it because God does something or because people do something? And I think it really comes down to a matter of perspective. In our minds, I think we feel like we start to turn away from our sin and turn to God, and then he responds favorably to us. But the reality is it's God who's working in our hearts to get us to the moment of turning to begin with, right? And that's, I think, pretty clear throughout Scripture. But if we jump too quickly to the behind-the-scenes work that God's doing, then we lose our motivation that we have to act, right? And so we have to hold both of those things in tension. Um, Verse 5, who does Israel think and who does Gomer think is the source of blessing in their respective lives? Gomer's looking after their lovers and Israel's looking after other nations around 
Yeah. So for Gomer, it's quite simply, if I give you what you want, you will pay me with food and clothing and all those sorts of things, right? Or at least the things that I need to make food and clothing. Israel, what would this look like? Trade alliances, right? Think about Solomon. Solomon <coughs> married all those women and concubines. Why? Not because he necessarily wanted to dwell with all of them as his wife, right? but because it would get him some sort of political power. Now, God had already promised him peace and security. He didn't need all those alliances in order to accomplish what God had already promised to him. And the fact when he pursued those things, what does it say in Second Kings and so forth? They turned his heart away from God, right? And that's what happened with Israel. To the extent that they stopped depending on God to provide for their needs, and they turned to the nations around them and the gods of the nations around them, they thought that the reason that they had fertility, children and grain and so forth, uh, fruit of the vine, all that, the reason that they had fertility and the reason that they had security was because of their relationship with the nations and the nation's gods. And God is going to make very clear in the next few verses that that is not at all the case. He's the source of those things. And so then to what Bob was saying in verses 6 and 7, God is going to make their, and Jonathan pointed out, God is going to make their way very difficult. Hedge up your way with thorns. Build a wall so you can't find your paths. Here, it's, it's basically like, here's this woman who's going to this man's house and giving herself to this man, and God makes a, th a, a wall of, like, blackberry thorns and, and, and all of those, are, or barberry bushes or something like that, grow up so that she can't go down the path there anymore. And she's getting frustrated because the thing that has been providing her security is no longer providing her security. What did that look like for Gomer? Maybe these men that she was going to said, we don't want you anymore. What did that look like for Israel? The nations that they made alliances with turned on her. We see that over and over again uh, when we were looking at some of the background to the book of Isaiah. And remember the book of Isaiah and the book of Hosea were written around the same time. And so to the extent that God caused the nations to afflict his people because of their idolatry. That's what's being described here with this hedge of thorns and this wall. Then there's the frustration in verse 7 where she tries to go after them and she can't find them. Then she says, well, I'll go back to my first husband. It was better than at the first. Does that remind you of any other stories or, or in the Bible? I'll go back to where I was because it's better than this life. Sandra? Yeah. We see a very clear parallel with this with the prodigal son in the New Testament. We would hope that we wouldn't have to come to this point to realize that it was better when we were following after God. But sometimes this is what has to happen for us to see that God is better. Certainly in the life of Israel and sometimes in our own lives as well. Someone read for us please verses 8 through 13. Who can read 8 through 13? Evan, thank you. And I will make them a forest 
and the beasts of the field will devour them. I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. So who is the source of the blessings that Israel had and who is the source of the good things that Gomer had? God and Hosea, right? They were the ones who were providing those things. And here's basically the picture. Hosea gives Gomer a dress. He gives her jewelry. She puts it on and goes find some random guy in the street and is like, let me let you enjoy these things, but not realizing or not paying attention to the fact that it was her husband who had given them to her. For Israel, God provided for her food and provisions of various kinds, and she basically went to the nations around her and says, thanks for all these things that you've given me. So it's like for you and I, let's say that you're at a birthday party and someone gives you a present and instead of turning the person that gave you the, pre the present, you get it and you go talk to some uh, random person who's not at all part of the birthday party and say, hey, thanks for this thing that you gave me. We see the, the rejection, the um, disrespect, all of those sorts of things associated with behaving in this, this kind of way. And so God says, to the extent that you don't recognize that this came from me and that it's mine, I will take it back. Um, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, and he said that one thing that he feels like he has learned in his life or has been in the process of learning or has reflected on, something along those lines, we tend to think that the things that we possess are fixed, like... I'm tall, I can play basketball, I can uh, build things really skillfully, I can do something with a musical instrument, I can um, read quickly, I can um, do well in school, whatever it might be, right? And he said one of the conversations he regularly has with his kids is anything that you have God can take away if you don't use it for Him. I think we see an illustration of this here, particularly if we take that even a step further. Not just I don't use it for God, but I use it for mediocre things, right? So an illustration of this would be, let's say that God has given you an ability to mm, take in lots of information and think about it. Okay? It's not sin, per se, for you to waste that skill on watching YouTube videos and learning a lot about random things instead of doing your job or ministering to people, right? Not sin, per se, in quite the same way that it would be for you to learn all sorts of details about all sorts of evil things, right? But whether it's wasting what God has given us on mediocre things or devoting ourselves to sinful things, Neither of those honor the God who gave us those gifts to begin with, right? So God's response is, you're making all these feasts and celebrations, I'll make it so you have nothing to have them with. You want to say, look at these fruit trees and all of these vines that are the things that, you know, maybe my lovers gave me the seeds to plant these and now I have them, I can strike them with blight and make a wilderness grow up around them and you can have nothing to eat. And so that's what he's talking about in verse 13. I'll punish her for the days of the bales. When you take your beauty and your gifts 
and all of who you are and you devote yourself to someone else who's not the one who's given you those things, God says, I will punish you. Someone read for us, please, 14 through 20. Who can do 14 through 20? Tina, thank you. Uh, through verse 20, if you would, please. Okay. What's happening in these verses now, verses 14 through 20? The promise of judgment in the section that we just read before, if there is no repentance. What's happening now? Restoration. Okay, good. Uh, basically, here's the picture. Here's a woman who has been devoting herself to anyone and everyone except her husband, and her husband goes after her as though he's starting the whole process of winning her heart all over again. I will allure her, bring into the, into the wilderness, and speak kindly to her. Verse 15, he will give her vineyards and, and land, and she will sing and rejoice. And there is a kind of a return to, if you will, the uh, what people sometimes call the honeymoon phase of marriage, right? that there is a restoration to the joy and the excitement associated with beginnings and not the shame and, and destruction and uh, just misery associated with a marriage gone wrong. Verse 16 is kind of interesting. You won't call me Ishi and will no longer, you'll call me Ishi and not Bailey. What did, anybody have a footnote that tells you what that says? What that means, rather? Bob? What's significant about that? Well, with husband, there's a covenant. Or you're a slave. Uh-huh. Devin? Yeah. Evan? Um, when you obey, taking love, the other you obey out of 
Okay. I'm not saying this to shock you, but let's just be honest about what's going on here. Basically, Israel has to make a choice to someone. The slang term is her pimp, right? The one who's selling her into adultery. Or that's going to come up. Or whether she wants to relate to who is her husband and actually so without going into too much detail but just to illustrate the point there are people who for a variety of reasons get themselves trapped into situations where there will be a man who will sell the woman's body in a transaction to other men or other women or whoever right to be used however they want, to be abused, to be treated horribly. There is the reality, and this is one part of the dark realities of the world that w in which we live, in which people are abducted and taken into that sort of life. And there is the reality of people who choose it willingly, not knowing where it's going to lead. And the second, I think, is what's in view in this chapter. Here's a woman who, for whatever reason, has decided that this is how she's going to earn her living, but she has become enslaved to a man who is selling her to other men, giving her scraps to provide for her. So think about the difference in those two pictures. Here's a woman who is loved by her husband, who is devoted, who will lay down his life for her, and here's a man who says, you make me rich, and I'll give you a little bit and string you along and when you're, there's no more left of you to be used up, I'm going to throw you away. That's the picture that we have here. God and the devil. On its face, what God wants seems really hard. Only be devoted to me. We're like, but, but there's dozens of other options. Right? Quick application along the lines of marriage. Most people say marriage vows along the lines of forsaking all others, right? That's a hard thing to live up to because there are moments when Satan tempts you to say, but what about this one or that one or the other one or this one right now or this one down the road? There is this thing in our hearts that doesn't want to be satisfied and wants to hold out for what in our minds is potentially a better option. But the reality of covenant and promise and commitment is you make a choice and you stick with it for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do you part. Forsaking all others. She thinks that there is freedom in seeking after all these other options. And what she finds instead is slavery and misery. We think sometimes that there is freedom in seeking after other options. And people's families get destroyed and their lives get ruined and their children hate them and all sorts of other chaos ensues. God's name is dragged through the mud being perhaps even more important than some of those other things, although they're all bad. To the extent that we do that in a spiritual sense, here's what it looks like. God says, I want you to worship me and only me. And we're like, well, what about that God over there? 
What about the God of Mammon, the God of money? Um, what about that God over there, the God of fame and power? What about that God over there, the God of pleasure? What about that God over there, the God of drunkenness? We're like, maybe one of those gods is better. That's what Israel pursued, found misery, and yet God goes and brings her back. Such that she doesn't even mention, verse 17, the names of the bales from her mouth. This is significant, I think, when we put it in the context of what's happening here. So, to the extent that, Go that Gomer's husband is Hosea, she no longer mentions Benjamin or whoever other the names of the men that she had been with before. She no longer mentions them anymore. Now it's only Hosea, right? She doesn't mention the name of the man who is oppressing her and, and forcing her to be with these other men potentially as a kind of a slave. She doesn't even mention them anymore because they are no longer the focus of her life. They're no longer the point for which she's living. God makes a covenant, verse 19, I'll betroth you to me forever in righteousness, justice, loving kindness, compassion, and faithfulness. All of the qualities that she has not experienced from all these men that she's been chasing after, God and the nations and the false gods, God through Hosea to Gomer and through himself to the people of Israel is restoring to what should have been. We'll read verses 21 to 23 in just a second. Think about the picture of Ephesians 5. Here's what we tend to think Ephesians 5. Um, Ephesians 5 is like, I will, uh, the church is like a bride adorning herself for her husband. Hmm. Maybe she has a zit that needs to be covered up. Maybe she has something stuck in her teeth. And God deals with those little things, and then now she's ready for them on their wedding day, right? The church is ready for Jesus. I think this is the picture of what's going on. You and I are like the prostitute who have been devoting ourselves to false gods who are not attractive or lovely or desirable in a lot more ways than just minor defects. And God takes us and cleanses us and prepares us so that we can stand before him and give ourselves to him fully and devotedly and wholeheartedly in love. I think Hosea and the words of the prophets and a bunch of other places is the closest Old Testament parallel we have to the picture of Ephesians 5. When he says that I will present you spotless and without any fault, he's not talking about minor problems. He's not talking about imperfections. He's talking about wholeheartedly devoted to sin and pursuing after and loving it and being enslaved by it and all those other sorts of things such that he redeems us out of it, purifies us from it, so that we don't keep going back to it. But here's the problem. A lot of us, going back to this, say, here's my point of conversion, and now I'm going to get salvation, but we keep going back to that old way of life, which is what Paul talks about when he says, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. You are not your own. Stop going back there. You can't go back there. If you really love and know God, you cannot commit the act of spiritual adultery and think that everything is okay between you and God. And God will continue to make your life hard and take away everything that you have until you follow after Him. 
Why can I say that confidently? Because that's what we see all throughout the pages of Scripture. But we think in our minds, I can serve sin, and then I can show up on Sunday and Wednesday, and everything will be okay. I can serve sin, but no one will ever find out. I can serve sin, and life will still be okay, and the reality is it will not. And so in these chapters, we have a picture of God's amazing love for people who do not deserve it, and illustrated by Hosea's love for his wife who was constantly unfaithful. Someone read for us verses 21 to 23, please. Who'd do that for us? Devin, thank you. Jezreel means God sows. Verse 23 says, I will sow the people in the land. Verse 18 says, I will make a covenant with the beast and everything else and abolish the bow, sword, and war, and lie down in safety. This parallels very closely the picture that Isaiah holds out, right? There is a coming day of restoration in which war will cease, the lion will lie down with the lamb, and God will rule in which he restores his people to their land. Why are they not going to be in the land? Because of their idolatry and their exile. God restores them to the land, God sows, and God reaps for himself a harvest of glory and of a people who truly love him. Okay? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the opportunity to look at these truths from your word. I pray that our hearts would be stirred as we consider these things and that we would love you wholeheartedly. Lord, I think to the extent that we don't love you wholeheartedly, we don't love our husbands and our wives wholeheartedly, and to the extent that we are not loving our husbands and wives wholeheartedly, maybe we're not doing that for you either. Lord, help us to see that these two things are linked, that to the extent that there's any part of us that is fickle and unfaithful and disobedient, that's going to spill over into all of the relationships that we have and most importantly, our relationship with you. So, Lord, I pray that you would help produce in us the sort of faithfulness and righteousness and obedience that you want us to have following after your character, demonstrated for us by Jesus, pictured in the work you're doing in us as your church. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.